Hi, friends, and thanks for coming back to another episode of Debatable, the podcast breaking down controversial topics, unpopular opinions, and social issues one conversation at a time. There has been a question um, kind of rattling around my head over the past few months, probably because I've had a lot more time for self-reflection than normal, about the role that I play and that most of us actually play in consuming cancel culture and whether there's something in our human nature that makes us want to watch the downfall of others and maybe even get some satisfaction out of it. Now, while most people don't actively participate in cancel culture, and I would say myself included, by that I mean that I very rarely contribute my own commentary or tweets or anything like that, joining in with the public pile-on when someone's being called out. I do consume cancel culture. I read the articles about it. I go and read like the Twitter threads, the Instagram comment threads. So I'm definitely complicit. Um, But to help figure out what's going on in our heads, I am joined by provisional psychologist and cyber psychology researcher, Ash King. Thanks for coming to speak with me today, Ash. Thanks for having me, Crystal. Now, you are the content manager for the Indigo Project, which is a very modern, very cool psychology practice in Sydney. And you're also currently undertaking your PhD. Can you tell me a little bit about what your PhD research is about? Because from what I've seen, it's kind of right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's uh, still in very early stages at the moment, but it will be Uh, actually exploring um, identity and social media. So how we can develop a deeper understanding of maybe who we are by how we engage with the social media content, Uh, mainly the stuff that we share and what we disclose about ourselves online. This must be such a fascinating time to be doing this research because I guess over the past few months, there's been a real surge in the amount of content being shared online just because we've had so much more time on our hands to do so. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's a very new area of research. The cyber psychology department at the University of Sydney is, you know, one of the first of its kind. So a lot of people, you know, who uh, work in psychology, I guess, or have, have researched in psychology over, say, the past, you know, 20, 15 years, haven't really jumped on board with how much of an influence our social media lives can have on our, you know, real embodied existence. So I just find it something that is just ripe for the picking and ready to get explored deeper and deeper. Well, that's exactly what we're about to do. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) As I alluded to in in that little intro there, one of the things I've been trying to figure out and self-reflecting on, I suppose, is whether we actually can draw a line in the sand between people who join in the group voice, or I guess some might call it the Twitter mob, which I don't actually agree with, but anyway. So whether we can distinguish between those people and those of us who are maybe kind of quietly on the sidelines, but still taking part in cancel culture by consuming it. From your point of view, I guess, is there a dis- like a psychological distinction between what makes people kind of one or the other? Yeah, so I think that it's worth mentioning that something like cancel culture, um, we've given it a name now and we are kind of understanding it through the lens of social media for the most part, but it's not new to human nature. It's not 
like something that hasn't been happening for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years that humans have existed on planet Earth. It's only now that it looks quite different because we have access to this new type of technology, which kind of gives everybody a voice and allows everybody to jump in. So I think your question is fascinating because I guess it's like, well, what is the difference between the people who want to pipe up and the people who choose to stay silent? Um, I think that it could be indicative of how passionately and closely a person holds a belief um, if they want to sort of jump up and have their beliefs known or, you know, take part in, in, in maybe, I guess, cancelling someone publicly online, um, as well as like how important they consider expressing that belief publicly will more strongly align them to an in-group which is essential to their sense of identity, which is, I think, something that we might explore a little bit more as we chat. Yeah, you know, you're so right in saying that it's not new. It just, at least, I guess it seems to me that it's it's not new, but it's more visible. And there are more touch points now that we have these very active, you know, digital lives. There are more touch points where this can kind of happen and you can be exposed to it than before. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could go back even further in time, you know, when we're living in sort of tribal communities and and we, you know, made an effort to, I guess, uh, publicly exile or take someone down because they did something that was potentially damaging to, you know, the uh, solidarity um, or survival of our group. Um, So I think that's kind of where it all stems from. And then as we progress, you know, through media, yes, there was only a certain amount of voices that could that could get out there, you know, with with popular media, but with social media, everyone's got a phone in their hand, everyone's got a Wi-Fi connection. So anyone with an opinion and enough balls, I guess, to shout it out there is is going to jump on board and bring their voice into the game. So it's almost like it's those who, you know, at this point are participating in actually using their voice to say something that's a very strong part, as you as you would say, of their how they self-identify as caring about that issue. It's like a very intense, whereas someone who might just be watching along and maybe agreeing with that person who's using their voice, it's not as strong a part of their identity that they feel like they need to join in. Is that kind of like the distinction that people could be making even subconsciously in their minds? Yeah, I think that most of this comes down to uh, subconscious um, behaviours. I don't think that a lot of people spend a lot of time sitting and thinking, well, am I going to get on board and am I going to share my opinion here? Um, It's really important for people's sense of identity and belonging to belong to groups, um, which just naturally means that they're not going to belong to other groups. And Mm -hmm. if they want to feel secure in their sense of identity and they want to protect their status in that group, then they're going to want to make it publicly known that they support and are aligned with that particular group. I think that a lot of groups now um, are divided by sort of political or moral beliefs and that's where things get super contentious um, and really fiery, especially on online platforms. Is this almost like that idea of, you know, self-definition by opposition? So it's like I know what I am 
because of what I'm not? Yeah, 100%. It's, um, it's definitely looking and, and it kind of creates a, a further barrier uh, between connection. And when we want to advance as a society, what we've learned is that the most important thing is for us to connect and communicate. Um, but because we are all so volatile in this current climate, um, it's becoming really difficult to find any common ground. Yeah, no, I totally I can see, you can almost what you can see it happening and you can see the people who are really willing to throw their voice out there. I mean, sometimes I even watch in admiration because there's a part of me as well that, and I guess like I'll use myself as a surrogate for the audience and the listeners here. I feel like I put in that second step of thinking about whether or not I want to actually speak up and make a public comment and that comes from almost self-preservation. So I might agree with the beliefs that are being shared and say like, yeah, you know, I don't think this person, I think this person has said the wrong thing. You know, I maybe agree that they should be like losing opportunities because of that, but I'm not going to add my voice because there's an element of me not wanting to put myself in a very exposed position. And is that kind of the line between a whole bunch of people who might think the same thing, some of them are willing to speak up and some of them are not, even though they all agree with the belief that underpins it. It's a very convoluted question, but I think you know what I mean. I know what you mean. And you know what? I completely relate to that. I'm exactly the same. Um, I often think about, you know, what my voice will do, what purpose it'll serve when thrown in and, and maybe how people will perceive me. Because obviously when you pipe up on social media, it's always able to be tracked. Even if you delete it further on down the line, people can take sort of uh, screenshots and it can be something that lives on forever. I think, um, that that does keep a lot of people silent. Uh, but I think that the people who have these really, really strong, bold and passionate beliefs um, are always going to be the loudest voices in the room. And they're going to, they're going to want to speak up because it is so, so much a, a huge part of who they are. You know, those people also are um, are operating from a place of, you know, you said that you you take that pause before thinking, am I going to pipe up here? You know, am I going to share my opinion here? And that's kind of your prefrontal cortex coming online. So it's like the big juicy front part of your brain um, that's developed uh, in in humankind to get bigger and bigger over the last few hundred thousand years. It's, you know, the difference between our brains and the brains of other animals. It allows for you know, problem solving for reflection. Um, but sometimes when we feel in a, a state of threat or fear, that part of our brain shuts down. And what happens is our brains often uh, trigger into sort of fight or flight mode, which you've probably heard. Uh, different parts of our brain then come online, the parts that are intended to keep us alive. Um, they tend to not really mesh well with sort of quiet reflection and a lot more, they're a lot more automatic and instinctual. <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, if you come for me, I'm going to bite back. Um, and I think that that's how a lot of people react on social media, sort of from that part of, of their minds. This is so nuts. So literally the other day I I posted something to the Z Feed account that was, I guess it was, div- it was divisive. It was probably intentionally um confrontational maybe I'll say um and I knew I was going to be waiting <laughs> Love into, it. <laughs> to some murky waters with it 
but I did it any, but I did it anyway. <laughs> um, and you know, as I expected, some people kind of came out in pretty strong opposition and and were sharing their thoughts. It was getting late into the night for me, and it was taking such great effort to stop myself replying mm-hmm. to all of the comments. So I normally like when I post something, I'll you know I'll engage with people for a set amount of time, maybe like the first thirty or forty minutes. But you just can't do that forever because I'd never get anything else done. So then it's like, okay, put the phone down, like move on and people can continue to mm-hmm. chat and discuss in the comments and it's fine. But because this one was kind of kicking off, I was watching it more than I normally would. And it was like my hands, it was almost a compulsion that I really, really wanted to reply. I knew it was not going to be the most well-articulated or the best thought out answers, probably not even a good idea to respond. And I felt like I was having to fight myself to put the phone down and not reply. Yeah, well, you probably were. Yeah, well, clearly I was. (laughs) (laughs) My prefrontal cortex was trying to (laughs) fight fight the animal part of my brain. It was, yeah. And you know what? If if it managed to, to sort of convince you, hey, don't write that comment, maybe just pop your phone down, then that's it. You know, like that's evolution at work, I guess. Um, but I guess we all, we've all had experiences, I think, similar to that where it's been so hard for us. And uh, you know what? I also think when I've been in similar situations, you know, we're also obsessed with this idea of authenticity. Um, and we think that because those reactions come so authentically and immediately to us that it makes them the right ones. It makes them the real ones. Uh, so we tend to not self-analyze as much. Um, and if we react to them, it's just like, well, that's because, you know, I know that this is the truth or I know that that's the case. And to be honest, you know, like a lot of the time people's beliefs, um, they don't actually, uh, you know, they're not actually always grounded in fact and, and data and, they're sort of more grounded in this sense of moral identity that we all have, but we tend not to dig very deep into. Oh, I feel like that is a whole other (laughs) episode right there. I really want to get into that. It's juicy, juicy. (laughs) If we shift slightly to the other group of people who, and I will put my hand up and say, I am one of these people. I like to watch it go down. (laughs) Is there an element of voyeurism in that where I'll actually like go to the, you know, if if a celebrity has said something hugely inappropriate and you see it kind of trending online or maybe media outlets have picked it up, I like to go to the post. I like to go to the place where they've said it and read all of the reactions and like read the comments. What is wrong with me? (laughs) And is there... Yeah, is that like a voyeuristic kind of thing where we want to watch someone else's downfall? So voyeurism definitely has part of it. But you know what um, that brings up for me is this idea of schadenfreude, uh, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Um, it's actually, so the word is a compound of the German schaden, which means damage or harm, and freude, which means joy. So basically it breaks down to meaning taking joy in someone's misery um it's the opposite Mm -hmm. of sympathy it's a a pretty crunchy and unpleasant aspect of um our evolution but it definitely exists and there's actually been a study uh published in science journal by um a researcher called uh, takahashi and his colleagues 
they actually found that there is a part of our brains uh, which is called the the ventral striatum um it's linked to reward processing and that part of our brains actually is activated when we experience um schadenfreude so when we see somebody uh you know something shitty happening to somebody else it's you know never someone that we like or that we're very close to um but we're kind of almost taking some sort of perverse pleasure in that happening and our, our brains kind of light up like it's a reward for us to see that go down <laughs> so why is that <laughs> like what is the is there an evolutionary purpose that that has served? Because it seems to me with my absolutely unscientific, no basis in research, but my opinion on that is it feels like there's almost a learning element of seeing someone else's fuck up and seeing how poorly that goes for them, a bit of comfort that it wasn't you and a little bit of learning that, you wouldn't or now you know to never ever go there and do that is that actually the case like what purpose has that served for us yeah I think you've nailed it I think it's you know getting some pleasure in the fact that this isn't happening to us and so it's like woof, that's a relief um and also just I guess gaining an understanding of of what could happen and what's possible and how we can then add this piece of information um, to inform our behaviour in the future. So, yeah, pretty much just what you said. I think um, Nietzsche actually said that the emotional pain people feel about their own in-group's inferiority results in the pleasure of schadenfreude when um, someone in a successful out-group fails so once again we're looking at these sort of in groups and out groups and when people feel like maybe their group is inferior or sort of hardly um you know hard done by then it sort of brings joy for one to see someone in an out group that they maybe perceive to have more power and influence um sort of be brought down and you're like well you know good that's what you deserve oh my god my brain (laughs) is like exploding with recognition at all of this and then this is where you know to expand it out to media this is why when there are um I guess, kind of explosive stories that media publications write that then get shared to the social accounts, you know, because the readers of The Australian all identify as a group that reads The Australian and the values that are baked into that, they're going to enjoy seeing negative stories written about groups of people who are very, very different to them. And that's why the comment section on those stories goes off and then vice versa for people who read The Guardian who all have a set of values that tie them together. They love to see like maybe a more right-wing figure be taken down in a Guardian piece and the comments go off there too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I have, I've got really broad social media accounts that follow a huge range of opinions. Um, And I do this intentionally. And also because I constantly think that I'm wrong about everything. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, I could say that it's an act of humility, but I just, I tend to not want to, want to um, align myself too strongly with any particular, say, you know, 
moral identity because I know how contextual they are and I know how changeable they are over lifetimes. Um, so it kind of gives me this flexibility to take in a lot of a lot of this drama um, across, you know, like more sort of right-leaning and left-leaning platforms. And sometimes you'll see, you know, the same story um, shared by two different publications and, and the comments, you know, the complete opposite. So it is really interesting. And I think that social media, you know, does offer us this opportunity to like, um, it's like a Petri dish of, of uh, you know, social psychology and how people react to one another and how they, you know, show off that they're in this group and they're not in the other group and what they think about the other group. Yeah, it's like it's like giving everybody in the street a microphone mm-hmm. <laughs> and letting them walk around and yell whatever they like out into <laughs> out into the abyss. Yeah, that's right. On that note about media, I mean, we so I spoke to um the news and politics writer for Junkie, Rachel Conahan, in the last episode of Debatable that just went up, and we spoke a bit about the fact that negative stories or stories about public figures or people doing things that are bad just attract a lot more traffic than stories about people doing good things mm-hmm. and you know following that logic the worse the the behavior the bigger the traffic is kind of generally the rule why is is that tied into the schadenfreude as well or is it different when there's not really when you're not part of a visible or vocal audience like what is it that makes us click on that at all yeah I I do think that the schadenfreude element is definitely at play there and we also want to see you know how our in-group is is coming up and you know like are we doing good or um or is you know is someone tearing us down and you know do we need to come come for them um there's also you know the element of envy too which uh, you know we can't neglect um again you know that has presence in in our in our brains and the way our brains work you can pick envy up on like an fmri scanner and often you know if we see people who are doing good and look i'm sure that we've all experienced it like you know it's particularly with people who may be living the sort of life that we want maybe they're doing the sort of job we want or have uh, you know a relationship that you know, looks good to us that we might not have in our life or a family, you know, we see them on social media or that we'll see them um, in the tabloids or in news articles, we'll have this sting of discomfort. It doesn't feel good to kind of know that, you know, like, oh, well, you know, they're doing even better um, because there's part of us that wishes that we could have that. So I think that maybe that also um, is something that, that leads us to be a little less, you know, um, keen on jumping in on those articles of, of good news. Yeah, I never thought about, about it like that. I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit, nor should anybody be really, but I think jealousy and envy drive a lot more of our negative emotions than we probably care to admit, mm-hmm. um, especially with, you know, so much of people's lives being visible on social media, which we've never experienced ever before, that much visibility, but also without the recognition that it actually is only what they choose to put out there. Um, And for most people that is very curated, you know, a cross-section of their life. Um, Yeah, for sure. And there is like this, this movement, especially within like sort of women's media and, and, 
um, women's groups on social media of celebrating each other's successes and celebrating each other's wins, which is amazing. And, you know, there's room for us all, which is, which is all true. But I think that is kind of covering up that very base human tendency to jealousy and envy that's that's there and it's not really addressing the issue it's just patching over the top of it just like sticking a band-aid on top and saying yes we're happy for everybody but not acknowledging that really when it comes down to it like we're not happy for everybody (laughs) yeah I I really like I really like that um that point and the exploration of it because I think that we're all you know so keen to you know hashtag challenge accepted like female empowerment we do have envy and we do have jealousy and it's real. It's just ugly to talk about because we think that people are going to judge us and that people are going to think that we're, you know, like a nasty piece of work. I think mm. that it would help if we were a little bit more open and honest about it because it is a normal part of of human nature. Like we're not all bloody Mother Teresa's. Like I, for example, um, a, sort of growing up in high school, um, And after high school, I was a music theatre performer and I always was so jealous of Leah Michelle. Um, And (laughs) so she she is born around the same time at me time as me. So we're around the same age. Um, She's also, you know, music theatre performer and she did all this stuff on Broadway. And um, then she was on Glee. And I was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, like I would love to be able to do that. So it kind of made me really kind of a bit hateful for her anyway so I said you know grew up <laughs> and um you know like have now a, a career in in psychology and, and all that but um recently you know she has been on the list of people who've been publicly cancelled recently Oof. for she her has had a big takedown has hasn't she just <laughs> she's just been torn into something severe um and there, like, there was a part of me that was just like, yeah, like, so keen to see it. And that was quite challenging for me to recognize in myself. I was like, well, I always thought that I was a good person, you know, compassionate person who wants the best for people um, until, you know, you take a step back and, and you, you sort of engage that, that part of your, your rational mind and you go, okay, so why am I reacting this way? And, and look back to sort of the envious feelings you might have had for someone in the past and, and that might lead you into thinking, well, this is why I'm enjoying seeing them, you know, get torn a new one. (laughs) And I feel like there is a, there is, we do have an internal limit of how much, what kind of a negative experience we would like to see even our worst enemy have. Because I kind of feel like with Leah Michelle, she's being, you know, she's being called out now for some pretty horrendous behaviours that she has subjected other people to on set while she was filming Glee and a whole bunch of other stuff, which is like, you know, these are things she's done to other people. So there is a bit of that joy almost in seeing her get called out called out for it or like get her comeuppance. However, it doesn't extend to really, really, truly horrible things like Corey Monteith, who was then, who, who was her fiancé at that time, um, passed away he died and that's not the same type of we don't want to see that happen to even our worst enemy it, is I, there a yeah. line between like we want to see things that are recoverable <laughs> almost uh, I'd like I'd like to think so yeah for the most part I'd like to think that most people are are that way um I guess you know existing on social media can can kind of signal that 
some people want like the worst outcomes. I, I think, you know, there was people who said to Leah Michelle, I mean, after, um, I think recently they, they found another Glee castmate who had who yeah. drowned. Naya Rivera. Um, that's right. That's right. And so that story was, you know, really horrible. And then there was people piling on going, oh, Leah Michelle, it should have been you, you know, like, I imagine saying that. It's ugly. It's ugly. And, you know, people, again, they have no filter um, when it comes to voicing these opinions online. So they'll share something like that. Don't really realize how, you know, nasty and, and horrible it is. Mm. I don't know if this is just me being optimistic or, or wanting to believe that no one could actually think that. But I do feel like there's an element of escalation there too, whereas when some people start to, to call out someone else, others who join the fray feel like they have to say more and more extreme things to feel like they're adding to the conversation rather than just repeating it until the point where we do have people saying these horrendous things that I, I honestly don't want to think that they actually believe. Yeah, I mean, like, this is not really my area of research, but uh, from, you know, what I can imagine, the sort of trolling behaviour can can be uh, sort of linked to attention-seeking and, you know, mm. thinking, well, you know, no one's going to notice if I'm like, you know, make it sort of a, a passive comment here. I'm going to go all out and this is what's going to, you know, get retweeted and this is what's you know, people are going to respond to. So they're kind of getting some recognition there. And then there's also that um, element of anonymity where, you know, if you have an account that's not under your own name, you can just be as foul a human being as you want to be, really. You can just, like, push the limits, see what you can get away with, and maybe it's just, you know, for fun, which is, like, a pretty perverse idea of fun. But uh, I, I don't doubt that that's some people's intentions. To loop back to the schadenfreude of cancel culture does it need an audience to actually kick off yes I believe it does um yeah once again maybe we can link this back to you know our tribal communities where you needed to put someone on display for their transgressions because it was a sign to everyone else hey if you fuck up like this this is what's going to happen to you too uh so it needed an audience. Uh, it needed to be visible. You know, when it comes to this sort of thing, like I think particularly if it's like with friends and stuff, I, you can probably see it like within your own social media communities, like not even so much in like, you know, responding to celebrities being taken down or, or, or what have you. You're like someone, you know, maybe saying something that's a little bit like, ugh, like they obviously don't have all the facts or maybe they've fumbled with their words or they've used a phrase that has only recently become something that, you know, you do not use anymore. Um, and you think, well, if this was someone's friend, why wouldn't they, you know, privately message them and go, hey, um, I just wanted to to bring up something that you shared online earlier um, and have that dialogue or start that dialogue somewhere privately. A lot of the time, people do it in public because they want to be seen um, as having sort of these moral or righteous opinions that you're putting someone straight. Um, And so it does matter that other people are going to bear witness to it. Yeah, see, this is is my suspicions confirmed. (laughs) It's, you know, it takes 
the culture that is allegedly being perpetrated, this concept of cancel culture, like it really does take all of us. And, you know, there's a part of me that feels like the people who are now trying to cancel cancel culture, which is just like (laughs) that is as much a part of it as anything because if there was no audience and if we weren't paying attention to it, it wouldn't really exist in the way that we have now. So anyone who's even watching you're doing kind of you're you're as involved and you're as much of a participant as someone who might be doing the public commenting and it's the same for people who are reading stories you know if you're clicking on the articles this is something I've actually said for years if you click on the articles you then can't get mad that the story's been written because (laughs) what they wanted you to do was click on the article and you did it (laughs) for sure I look I find myself doing that all the time particularly with like really dumb trashy um, like Kardashian content, you know, I'm not a huge Kardashian fan, but sometimes <laughs> some of those like articles, I'm like, I cannot not click on this. And then I'll complain about, you know, the way that they represent, uh, you know, women and body positivity and that it's so problematic. And I was like, well, here I am bloody clicking on the articles and giving you know, boosting these algorithms for them. So, you know, I'm complicit. It's a reinforcement loop, isn't it? Because then the algorithms learn so quickly that they show you more and more of something that is just like inflaming your, you know, triggering that response of like, oh, I don't want this, but I do. And I keep clicking on it and I keep getting more of it. And that's how we spend our days now. (laughs) And I think that it's what makes us sort of more and more polarised because we, you know, might dabble into like, oh, I'd like to look into this area and then soon we're getting more and more content, like you said, Um, you know, by people of that belief and that's all we're seeing. So we're just having it confirmed and confirmed and confirmed and confirmed. No one is challenging it. Um, We're definitely not getting served the content that would challenge it, you know, at all. And so there we are left with this kind of really, it's almost like going to the gym and just working out one arm, you know, like <laughs> you've just got this like massive uh, arm and this other arm, which is, you know, this the other right, side. Right bicep. <laughs> is it Roger <laughs> Federer? He's got like one really, all tennis players really, they've got like one real strong arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how we are when it comes to a lot of political and moral issues. And I think that the internet definitely does play a huge, a huge part in that. So if I want to end with some kind of takeaway for myself, as well as everyone listening, what kind of questions would you kind of recommend that we should be asking ourselves or reflecting on ourselves when it comes to our own relationship with the failure of others? So whether we're participating it, whether we're just watching it, what is it that we need to be thinking about to kind of evolve into a a better version of ourselves? Yeah, I think that that's a really great question. And I think that, you know, when you ask people why they might jump on board to a lot of these, say, like cancel culture movements is they always say, well, it's about accountability. You know, like someone needs to be held accountable for what they've done, what they've said. Um, And I think that that's a a really kind of noble idea. However, I I actually don't think that you can force someone to be accountable. You know, like accountability is about making someone take responsibility, but, you know, what we, what we truly want is for them to take responsibility on their own. Um, And so if your goal is to make someone accountable, um, if you provoke fear, then it's going to be very hard for them to 
understand you, to listen to you. So I think that it ends up having the opposite effect of what we want. Um, and if that's truly what we want, you know, like, and that's looking over a lot of the more, say, subconscious motivations of maybe us wanting to be seen as being very righteous or having the right opinions and being noticed by other people in our in-group. If we really do want to help people learn and help people understand how they may have, you know, really harmed um, someone by something that they've said or something that they've they've done, what we need to aim for is an emotional connection. Um, we want to connect with each other on a compassionate human level and not just, you know, descend into this screaming match of, well, I'm right and you're wrong because nothing changes from that. In fact, it's more likely to get them to not listen to you and other people who have similar opinions as you. It's a very fast way to just cement people in the belief that they came to it with if it just kind of gets to that slinging match place. Yes, yes, so true. Ash, thank you so much for your expertise and your insight and your time. I have a lot to think about now, as I'm (laughs) sure everybody listening does too, because we are definitely all a part of this. We certainly are. It's an interesting world we're living in now. I really do actually want to hear what everybody listening um, thinks about this episode and whether or not y'all are going to start reevaluating your own relationship with cancel culture and whether you feel complicit in consuming it. So send me a DM. My DMs are always open or you can send an email to hey at zfeed.com.au. And as always, if you do think the world needs more of these big, good conversations about the stuff that really matters, please do consider sharing Debatable with a friend, subscribing to the podcast, and just continuing to talk about it all. We want to change the world one conversation at a time.